0: Today, we're going to continue on the topic of the Middle Ages, but we're going to talk about a topic that I, um, I'm both excited and terrified to talk about. It's the subject of iconoclasm. Uh, anybody want to venture to give me a definition of iconoclasm? What is iconoclasm? Icon smashing. <laughs> hulk smash hulk smash icon good um yeah icon smashing that's really that's really what ends up happening but we need to get a picture of how we get here in church history where there are even icons to smash so um how do you even get to this to the point and what are we really talking about even when we talk about icons so i, I think this i think you we'll all find this interesting I, I don't think there will be a dull moment in any of the sunday school not that there ever is. Um, But I mentioned earlier when we were looking at the early church fathers that icons eventually became normalized. Um, We're going to talk about the difference, by the way, between an icon and an image, at least in the minds of the Western and the Eastern church. An icon is a flat, two-dimensional image. It doesn't stand out from the 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 uh, surface on which it is so that can be a painting that can be uh, a mosaic that can be some sort of flat image that's on a flat surface that would be an icon and then in the minds at least of the western church a graven image is a statue Uh, a graven image is a statue and uh, the spoiler alert the western church doesn't have a problem with them the eastern church does that's why they make icons because they don't want to make statues Um, They don't want to make a graven image, so they make a flat image is (laughs) their solution to it. Again, we'll talk about this in in just a moment. we We will talk about how they use the images. We will talk about how the images get used. So how do we get to this point, though, where eventually... The Eastern and the Western church are filled with images. If you go to an Eastern Orthodox church today, they're filled with images. If you go to a Roman Catholic church today, filled with images, filled with statues. um, They have no qualms at all about either of those things. How do we get there? Here's how how this comes about. There are persecutions in the fourth century, especially Diocletian and Galerius. These are the Roman emperor's This is sort of the last whimper of the pagan emperors before uh, Constantine, before, um, before the other emperors who end up declaring Christianity to be the legal religion. So here's what happens. At one point, Origen, we don't consider him a church father because he held heretical views, but he is an early church writer. And at one point, Origen is debating Celsus. And, and he argues that Christians are inferior because they have no altars or images of their deity. That's what Celsus argues. He says, he says, you guys are inferior. He's a pagan writer, right? Celsus is. Celsus says, you know, our religion's superior because we have images of our gods. And you Christians don't. And Origen, how does Origen respond to that? Well, he responds by pointing to the second commandment where it says, you shouldn't make an image of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or anything that's under the earth. And he says that this is the reason why Christians avoid, this is a quote from Origen, Christians avoid temples, altars, and images, but are ready to suffer death when it is necessary, rather than debase by any impiety, the conception which they have of the most high God. And so Origen argues this over and over again, that it's impious to make an image of God, because if you make an image of God, you're reducing him. Origen's argument is the God we worship is greater because he can't be conceived of and he can't be wrapped up in an image. Um, Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria says, the law of Moses forbids us making images because seeing with our sight harms the reverence for the divine. That's the argument Clement of Alexandria makes. Um, Irenaeus at one point refers to images that a Gnostic group had of Jesus and Pontius Pilate And he says specifically, these are holdovers from paganism, right? The unbelievers in the Roman world, they're used to making images. And yet he says the reason why this Gnostic group is making images is because they haven't gotten the paganism out of their system yet. Um, Tertullian. uh, He makes a similar observation that any kind of art or image or statue, what does it do? It becomes an idol because we are so drawn to the visible and so drawn to the physical. So... So you see these early church writers, what are they doing? They're sort of hitting the same note over and over again that there's great danger in visible art and imagery because we get attached to it because it's more in our nature to love something we can see than to love something we can't see. Um, Lactantius, writing in 325 AD, he says this, religion consists in divine things and there's nothing divine except in heavenly things. It follows that images are without religion because there can be nothing heavenly in that which is made from the earth. There is no religion in images, but only a mimicry of religion. Wow. Who is that? That's uh, Lactantius. Uh, just rolls off the tongue. These names all roll off the tongue. They're great. This is 325 AD. So, you know, why is he talking about images? Because it's 325. You're now in the time period where paganism and christianity are beginning to be wed and so he's responding to what he's seeing around him what is he seeing around him they're seeing images um there's another writer named arnobius 330 ad he's he engages with arguments that iconophiles make later when i say iconophile i mean it's the opposite of iconoclast right iconoclast wants to break the images and iconophile appreciates or loves the image um, and so you're gonna have defenders of the images and I'm just calling them iconophiles because it's an easier word to say. So here's what Arnobius is saying to people who preferred making images. He says, what then? Without these, do the gods not know that they are worshiped? What greater wrong, disgrace and hardship can be inflicted than to acknowledge one God and yet make supplication to something else? To hope for help from a deity and pray to an image without feeling. Um, there's a synod of Elvira in the early 300s. They make a bunch of pronouncements. Uh, one of the canons of the synod of Elvira is Canon 36. It says pictures are not to be placed in churches so that they do not become objects of worship and adoration. That's 300, right? That's not, that's not the grumpy Puritans, right? In the 16, 17, 1800s, right? This is the 300s, um, but this is, a this is again, I'm just spoiling you all. This is a losing battle. <laughs> they are swimming against the stream on this. Um, this is an interesting episode. Eusebius in 337. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Eric. Um,
1: could you help by defining terms a little bit as to what would be an acceptable versus an unacceptable
0: icon or image? Because I'm just thinking about like a chair. <laughs> Yeah, In the early church, the, the sort of icons that start appearing are usually images of Jesus, images of the apostles, images of Mary. Um, also images of, of the martyrs. When you read the early church fathers, especially these ones we're talking about here, they seem to be mostly focuses on, focused on images meant to depict God. They're the, because remember, they're engaging with pagans, and the pagans are by and large making images of their gods. And so it ends up sort of being an apologetic environment where they're saying, our God is better than your God because we can see our God. And so I, I do think that, they, that a lot of these same writers that I'm quoting from not only have issues with images of God, the images of Jesus by extension, but they also have issues with images of Mary and the disciples and the martyrs again, because the heart ends up becoming attached to these things that you're visually depicting. That's what you see in their rationale. So some of them are explicitly in these quotes talking about images of God. They're talking about images of Jesus. In their mind, an image of Jesus is an image of God. I will get to that in just a little bit. But um, So you're gonna have a combination, probably a range. I think all of the writers that I'm quoting here are, have issues with images of Jesus, though, which I think is sort of the the bare, the baseline part of the discussion here. Um, but a lot of them don't want any images. Remember the the guy who's in Jerusalem and he sees the banner hanging up or the, the, the banner hanging up, it's a picture of Christ and he tears it down and feels really guilty about it. Um, that would be an example of the sort of things that he, they would consider blasphemous. Because remember, they're still coming from a Jewish background where you don't depict God. You might depict creatures. You might depict um, the cherubim. Uh, such as you find on the altar, um, but you're not gonna try to depict God. And so the Jewish environment informs these early church fathers, and what you see is that the pagan environment ends up, whether they realize it or not, very much impacting how they think about religion as they are sort of making Christianity their own, and it becomes less Jewish and more Gentile. So that's, I think that's part of the background, at least. So there's a range of answers there. Um, So here's what happens with Eusebius. So Eusebius gets a request from the emperor's wife. The emperor's wife wants an image of Jesus and she wants it somewhere. I don't know exactly the location where she wants it, um, but she wants some image of of Jesus that she can have in the palace or some, some image of Jesus that she can have. And Eusebius gives her this response. I'm just gonna quote from Eusebius. He says, can it be that you have forgotten that passage? in which God lays down the law that no likeness should be made either of what is in heaven or what is in the earth beneath. Have you ever heard anything of the kind, either yourself in church or from another person? Are not such things banished and excluded from churches all over the world? And is it not common knowledge that such practices are not permitted to us alone? So, think of the think of, think of all the assumptions that are built into Eusebius's response, right? Eusebius takes it as a given. He doesn't even have to argue for it. Instead, he points to the universality of this in 339, that images of Jesus are banned in churches everywhere. He doesn't even think it's debatable. He's like, you know this, that we don't put these in churches. Um, and he was bold enough to say this to the emperor's wife even, right? I would, I would suddenly turn into a puddle uh, the minute I have to tell the emperor's wife, no, you can't have an image of Jesus. Um, Eusebius is like, I gotta say it. I have to say it. Here's what I want you to see, and it's why I keep quoting so many of these guys, because I want you to see that it's not just like one isolated person who's just especially stubborn. Um, This is a wide swath of the early church who understood that the second commandment opposed making images of God, and by extension, images of Jesus. Here's the issue though. Popular level, people loved images. They loved images. because the way that it often works is, right, if God's people don't push back, then eventually the taste of the society, the taste of the people, they can become the accepted norm. Especially if it becomes a norm and you don't immediately see the harm in it, right? If you see it happening and you're like, well, a lightning bolt didn't strike me. Like, I did it and it was fine. Uh, I did it and I, I can't see society crumbling apart. Um, not only that, but in the third or fourth century, what do you see instead? Churches going up everywhere. Uh, you're seeing what feels like a revival of some kind, right? And so if, if the images are going up around the same time that all this is happening, it just kind of feels like it's all part of something really big that's happening. And so it it's one thing to make a theological argument. It's another thing to really believe it in your bones. And it's another thing to just kind of be convinced of something else. So the tendency toward images came from a pre-Christian impulse, right, in these Gentile societies. It's certainly, it's certainly not something that would have grown out of Judaism, right? You wouldn't, in Judaism, you would not instinctively, if you look in the temple, right, the temple, what is the temple filled with? It is filled with images, but what are the images of? It's a garden image, right? It's pomegranates, it's palm trees. Um, you do have the cherubs on the altar, uh, the mercy seat, right? But the whole temple is filled with images of nature, of all of the very things that God's trying to take us back to, right? He's taking us back to Eden. And so that's why the temple is filled with this imagery that takes you back to Eden. Um, the, you know, the trees are, you're not going to worship the trees. And even, the, even the, the angels that are over the altar are not an image of God. Instead, they're worshiping God. They're, they're ministering for God. Um, but here's what the pagans did. So a little pagan background, not, not that this is extensive, but the pagans made images of their emperors and they revered them. It was one of the ways that they showed their devotion. Um, the imperial icon was placed on money. It was placed on military camps. It was placed on palaces. And so doing the same thing with heroes of the faith uh, came very naturally. It, very, it was very natural in a Christian context to say, look, if we do this for the emperors, if we put Constantine on our coins... Is Constantine greater than Jesus? Well, of course not. It's really easy in that context to say, we've got to push back, and how do we push back? We make better images. We make the images that compete with society's images. And so um, there's this time period between Nicaea and 325. I want to get the date right for Nicaea too. Uh, 787. So between... 325. Ooh, I wrote a terrible three a terrible two. I'm just going to rewrite them because they're so bad. Actually, they're all bad, but I you just have to... So the whole time period between uh, Nicaea I, this is the Council of Nicaea, and Nicaea II is the time period of the iconoclast controversy. Um... Christianity becomes legal in 312 that's the Edict of Milan. Nicene Christianity that's, that is Christianity that is defined by the Nicene Creed. You know the Nicene Creed? We, we read it every other week. What we read is technically an advanced version of it. it's called the Nicene Constantinopol- Constantinopolitan Creed, but that is too much, too much too many letters. so <laughs> we just call it the Nicene Creed. <laughs> um, Because it was refined at the Council of Constantinople. And that's a better version of the Nicene Creed. So um, that Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire in 380. So it's tolerated in 312. It becomes legal in 380. And that's Emperor Theodosius who does that. The result of this is churches are going up everywhere. Institutional power comes with it. People flood into the churches whether they're convinced of it or not. Um, Many are just motivated by the same thing that drove them to, to worship the emperors in previous generations. They haven't got a personal conviction. They just know that they want to be in step with society. They want to be in step with the government. Who wants to be on the wrong side of history, right? We can see where it's all going. And so they enter into the churches. And you start to see at the same time, after Christianity becomes legal in 380 or becomes the official religion in 380, more art and statuary shows up in churches. Until until then, these things were extremely sporadic. They depended largely on the will of church leaders to push back on the people in the areas where their churches were. Um, Robin Jensen says this, iconic portraits of apostles, saints, and Christ mostly appeared only toward the end of the fourth century. Again, the end of the fourth century is when it becomes the official religion. They are rare and they are not venerated by this time. Um, but, all, but imagine this, imagine all of the pagan converts flooding into the church as Christianity becomes legalized. It becomes very hard to hold back that tide if people are convinced that this is a way to worship. They've been taught by their society that this is how you worship. And so by the 600s, the images are everywhere. So within about 200 years, within, within about 200 years of Nicaea I, um, they're all over the place. Many were convinced, as previous generations were, that these images violated the Second commandment. It was very vexing for them to see the images proliferate. but it was very hard, but it was very hard on those who saw the fruit of this kind of physical adoration. Um, Those who objected to the images seemed like nuisances, right? You seem like a nuisance if you have a problem with the image because when someone sees an image, they think, well, it's harmless to me. I can't imagine that anything is changing in my own heart by seeing an image of God. Why can't you let me have my images? You don't want your images. I do want my images. I worship God in heaven in my own way. These images help me worship him. I'm not worshiping them. They're helping me worship him. You know, what business is it of yours if I have these pictures of Jesus or Mary or the saints? And it's easier to sort of argue for the late, quote unquote, laid back position that that says, hey, the status quo is fine. So here's what you start to see in 600. What are the uh, what is the interaction with the images look like in 604 in 604? Gregory the Great is is writing. So, right, we're we're right around here on the timeline, right? If if this is a timeline, the tiniest, most adorable little timeline, just a stub. But here you are, you're getting about halfway through between those two. And here's what Gregory the Great does. Um, Look at this. I'm going to call this a soft defense of images. This is what you start to see. He says, it has come to our ears that your fraternity, seeing certain adorers of images broke and threw down these same images in churches. So he's writing to someone who is an iconoclast, somebody who saw an image of Jesus and destroyed it. And he says, so so it's come to our attention that you did this. We commend you indeed for your zeal against anything made with hands being an object of adoration. All right, so far so good. He's seeing something good in what they're doing. In other words, he is very much being a politician here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, but we signify to you that you ought not to have broken these images. So now you start to see the, the change in the attitude, right? Again, this is 604. Why shouldn't they have broken them? For pictorial representation is made use of in churches for this reason, that such as are ignorant of letters may, may at least read by looking at the walls what they cannot read in books. So here he's, he's, he says, I can see a reason why somebody would Use these images. He says, your fraternity, therefore, should have both preserved the images and prohibited the people from adoration of them. To the end that both these, those who are ignorant of letters might have wherewith, to gathered a knowledge of the history and that the people might by no means sin by adoration of a pictorial representation. What year was this? This is 604. So here you are, we're well along now. We're, you know, we're almost 300 years into 200 years into what i'm going to call the paganization of the church um i mean i mean i'm being really harsh like but i'm just being straightforward um you can see the shift in thinking though right he's saying he's saying these images have a didactic purpose they have a teaching purpose um these people can't read right you gotta they gotta find this stuff out somehow he says these pictures are the only way for them to learn about jesus and so he says they're, they're tolerated by Gregory as long as they, don't, as they teach and they don't adore. He says, don't adore the images. If people adore the images, that's a problem. As long as they don't adore the images, it's fine. He's saying people will struggle. Here's, this is the reality, though. People struggle to observe that balance. Um, people continue to struggle to observe it. Even today, they struggle to observe it. Um, you know, if, if somebody, somebody will say, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't worship it. I didn't adore it. I didn't venerate it. But if you took it away, they lose their minds. Um, I think when you, whenever you get something taken away from you, you find out how you really felt about it. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, like we're going to talk about this in a minute, actually. We're going to talk about this in a minute. Just watch what happens when they try to take away the images that they are supposedly not worshiping. Um, or 7.26. So now we're getting really close to Nicaea 2. 7.26. Emperor Leo III has an image of Jesus, a huge image of Jesus. And it's over the imperial, the gate into the imperial palace. And he goes out to battle and he loses. He loses in battle and he becomes convinced that the reason he lost the battle was because he has been violating the second commandment. He becomes convinced That the images of Jesus that are all over the city are are the reason why God is punishing him. And so you can imagine what someone in that position might do. So he has one of his soldiers or he has a group of his soldiers come. And they go to take down the image of Jesus that's over the gate to the imperial palace. So soldier climbs up on a ladder. He goes to remove this image. And a woman in the crowd is so angered that they're removing the image, that she runs up, she, I believe, if my recollection is correct, because I heard about this in one of my classes, she runs up, she pushes the ladder, the soldier falls off, and he gets injured or, or killed, I, can't, I don't know which one it was, but she falls off the ladder, and then she struck the killing blow to this guy. She kills the soldier for trying to take down the image of Jesus that she supposedly isn't worshipping. <laughs> I'm not worshipping this image of Jesus, but I will kill for it, right? Um... All this time, right, Gregory's advice is being heeded, right? Tell them not to worship it. Tell them not to, not to adore it. And so uh, she gets punished by having a ram's horn shoved through her throat, just in case you wonder how you punish that kind of thing, apparently. Um, see, the crowd felt at a popular level that these, that these images, that, um, that these should be considered holy. That they should be treated with a type of reverence, even though they're just for teaching purposes, right? But it's not the way it ends up working out. And so, under Leo's leadership, opposition to the images spreads. Iconoclasts then were these people who their task was, and they saw it as their task was to destroy the image, get Christianity back to an imageless religion, and they sought removal of and destruction of these images from the church—images of Jesus, images of the apostles, images of Mary. Any image that was meant to represent God, anything that was at risk of becoming an object of worship, they wanted removed. Now, we need to distinguish. I'm going to go into a theological issue when it comes to the images of Jesus. So, you know, you were asking me about like what were did they view as acceptable images? What did they view as unacceptable images? Um, let's talk about the images of Jesus. Those who believed images of Jesus were acceptable um, argued, yes, you should not make an image of God. They were agreed. Don't make an image of God. So you have someone like John of Damascus. He is a a big defender of of images. He's writing, I think, in the 700s. So, um, yeah, 700s. So he argues this. He says, it's acceptable to make an image of Jesus. Why is it acceptable to make an image of Jesus? Because, he said, it's impossible to depict the divine nature. You can't see it. You can't see God. And so any picture you make of Jesus will only be a picture of the human nature of Jesus. Right? How many natures does Jesus have? We're just going to do some theology here for a second. He has two natures. How many persons? One, one person. Does anyone know what's the theological term for what unites them together in the one person? The hypostatic union. So in the hypostatic union, you have this one person and he's got two natures. And John of Damascus says, look, you, you can't see the divine side. You can't see the divine nature. You can only see the human nature. So when you make a picture of Jesus, you're only doing a picture of a man. You're not. This is not a picture of God. John of Damascus says it's not God. That picture of Jesus is not God. And so he says It's safe. Right, You're not making an image of God. You're only making an image of a man. This is just a mere man in this photo. Or image. Not, not photo. They didn't have photos back then. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so here's the response that John of Damascus receives. Um, they argue that because the person of, G- of Jesus, uh, because the person of Jesus has a human and divine nature, even an attempt to portray his human nature because it portrays his person will also be a portrayal of his divine nature. So you never can have Jesus without both natures, right? Jesus never goes without both natures. If he's, if he's only man, he's not our savior. Right? And if he's only God, he's not our savior because he can't die for our sins. So he is a person who always is God and man. And so to see an image of the person of Jesus was not just to see a nature. You never just see a nature. You see a person. It's an attempt to portray the person. Now, it's a theological argument, right? You cannot extricate the divine nature from the person of Christ and say that you're not making an image of God when you make an image of the person of Christ. Um, In Christ, what do we see? Jesus says, you see me, you've seen the Father, right? He says, to see me is to see God. To, to, To know me is to know God. It's not just to know a human. It's not just to know a man. It's to always know a man who is God and man. And so because of that, he is always a person who is God. Now, I I don't know if you could tell, but I do a better job of representing the no images view than I do representing the images view. I'm very sympathetic with the iconoclasts' argument, not necessarily their practices, but certainly with their arguments. I think it is hard to argue that an image of Jesus is not an image of a person who is God. I think that you... You get into strange theological places when you try to argue that Jesus in that picture is not God. Um, I, rec- I recognize you can't see God, but you are seeing a person who is God. So here's what happens. As the controversy continues, um, people begin to re-examine the second commandment. So here's the Eastern and the Western church. They have to think this through, right? Because... They've agreed that they have these images, they agree that they feel good about these images, and yet they have to think think about what is going on in the second commandment then. So the Western church, that's like the Roman side, the Roman Catholic side of the empire, they have to figure this out. And they say, look, the second commandment is pretty long. They say, maybe what we really have is that the second commandment is an extension of the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. How can you have no other gods before me? Well, don't worship by you, by means of graven images. So they don't see it as a separate. They don't see it as a separate command. They see it as a part of the first commandment. Now they still have ten commandments in the Western Church, but what is their tenth commandment? Well, basically, it's two commandments that say don't covet. One says don't covet your neighbor's stuff. The other commandment says don't covet your neighbor's wife. Um, that's how they understand the ten commandments. So they see it as a subsidiary comment on the second commandment. Um, He says, maybe there are still 10 commandments, but we're we're counting them wrong. We should have been counting them like this. And that's sort of uh, an answer that Augustine goes with actually. Now the Eastern church does things very differently. They say, look, we get it. Um, We can't make images of anyone, not even Jesus. So they say, we won't make graven images. We won't make statues because that's what it means for something to be graven. And so they say, instead, we'll do pictures, we'll do mosaics, we'll do paintings, anything that's flat so that they're not graven. We won't grave them. (laughs) Problem solved in the East, right? So that's sort of a way in their minds, that's a way to take the second commandment seriously. But also there's a little bit of hair splitting. You can definitely see it in the answer. Um, They still made images, just not three-dimensional images. Um, and that's what an icon is, right? It's an image of Mary or Jesus or the saints. It's flat. It's not three-dimensional. Um, another line of argument was advanced. They say, look, we're not really worshiping these images. You know, The second commandment says not to bow down to the graven image. We're revering. We're honoring these images. But we're not worshiping them. Uh, we only worship God. Uh, but we revere the images. And that's the difference. That's why we get upset when you guys tear down the images. Because... We don't worship them, but we do revere them. Um, by the way, when we get to Mary, we won't definitely won't get to Mariolatry this week. When we get to talking about Mary and how Mary ends up being revered and worshiped in the Roman church, then that's actually gonna take us back to this distinction again. Because what do they say with Mary? They say, we don't worship Mary. What do we do? We revere her. We revere her. So we're just honoring her. And that's what they say about the images. When we bow down to them, we're honoring them, but we're not but we're not worshiping them. Then you have a series of councils that are called, look, this is dramatic enough. This is tearing the the empire apart. We have to settle this. So Constantine V in 754 uh, calls for an ecumenical council, the Council of Hiera, It takes place near Constantinople. Guess what the council says? The council says no to icons. They say no way, can't be done, Now, here's what happens. The opponents, the people who like the images, the iconophiles, that's the word I was using, they call it a mock council. They say this is not a real council uh, because the patriarchs of the church weren't all present at this. You got to get everybody together or it doesn't count, they say. So then 12 years later, the second Lateran council meets and overturns the council of Hiera because they say it's not a real ecumenical council. You didn't have enough people there. Uh, my own position, make the council of Hiera great again. That's my, I'm gonna make a hat and wear it around. Make the council of Hiera great again. So then in 787, Nicaea II. This is the second council of Nicaea. They meet and they rule in favor of allowing icons. And I'm gonna just quote from the second council of Nicaea, which you will notice we don't read from this uh, in our Sunday morning worship. To those who apply to the sacred images the saying in divine scripture against idols, anathema. To those who, that means cursed or cast out. Um, To those who do not kiss the holy and venerable images, anathema. You won't kiss that image, anathema. To those who call the sacred images idols, anathema. They're not idols. Uh, To those who say that Christians had recourse to the images as gods, anathema. To those knowing who knowingly communicate with those who insult and dishonor the sacred images, anathema. You can't even hang out with somebody who's got a problem with images, with the Second Council of Nicaea. So two-dimensional icons were permitted, not just three-dimensional icons, uh, but not three-dimensional icons. Um, icons were never to be worshipped. They were to be seen as aids to worship. They were to help you worship. Now, notice this. All of these Conflicts increase the tension between the Western church centered around Rome and the Eastern church centered around Constantinople. Um, you have political consequences from these theological differences, right? They have very different approaches to these images. The Eastern church is actually saying at the second council of Nicaea that you can't make graven images, but you can make the flat images. And the Western church is like, you're calling us idolaters, um, the fundamental question when it comes to icons of Jesus is, was different, right? Is it appropriate to make an image of the Son of God? Um, I have already sort of given you my, my case, uh, my, the theological case. But there are a few other things to keep in mind. One is this, it's the danger of false witness. Um, when we make images, we are bound to misrepresent. We're bound to, to bear false witness about God somehow. Um, we don't have the capacity to tell the truth about God using means that God hasn't given to us right? So he has Christ. Christ. Christ was incarnate. He is incarnate. Christ has a body. Christ had a body. He walked the earth in a physical body. The problem is, of course, we don't know what it looked like. We know, you know, we know he had hands. We know that he had a face. We know that he had feet. We know he had all the stuff that a human being has, and yet we don't know what he looked like. Right. So you see all these cultures where Jesus is depicted, right? You get Rastafarian Jesus. You get Chinese Jesus. You get um, anglo American Jesus with a shotgun on his lap, like when people make depictions of jesus they they do it according to their own cultural conventions. sometimes we try sometimes we try to be faithful we say oh, i 'm going to make him look just really jewish i 'm going to draw a picture of what I think a Jewish man in the first century would look like, right We want to be faithful to that, but no matter what we do, we end up not getting it right. We end up saying something different about Jesus than is true of Jesus, the man we meet Uh, in heaven ends up being very different than the ways that we tried to depict him here. So I would just say there's a danger of false witness, that we are not really setting Jesus forth in the way that he's told us to set him forth, right? He's told us to set him forth in his word, uh, in the preaching of the word. Um, There's also the danger, not of false witness, but of loving the image, right? Not only is bearing false witness about God a danger, but idolatry of the heart, which we have way less control over than we think. I have trouble dealing with the idols in my own life, um and and even noticing them and finding them identifying them is hard and rooting them out is hard how do any of us have enough self-control to stop ourselves from worshiping an image of jesus in our hearts regarding him as holy at seeing that face and not finding something in it to love it's very very difficult it requires the sort of willpower that i don't believe i personally have If you do have that kind of willpower, I really admire it. I I don't know very many people that I think over the long term could handle it. I think the way that you see people reacting shows that the people certainly of the empire didn't have the will to fight it. Um, Eventually, they end up yielding to those temptations as well. Um, We need to be clear. The practice of icons was not simply for decorations, right? Right. We might think that. We might hope that. They do make, I mean, a church with elaborate images all over the place is quite a sight to see. Mm -hmm. But here, I'm just going to quote from the Oxford History of Christian Worship. These icons played an integral role in liturgical services. Icons were regularly carried around city walls in procession by clergy during prayers of intercession for deliverance from wars or natural disasters. Icons were venerated and kissed by the faithful as part of the liturgy. During the services, clergy sensed icons, you know, they they got smoke on them, um, which were illuminated by candles and lights as part of their circuit in the church building. Later, iconographic programs that decorated church buildings illustrated the entire festal liturgical year with images that would include the Feast of Christ and his mother. Um, The patriarch, Photius, insisted that these were not merely decorations. These are not just decorations. The church filled with images, was anchored in truth and reality, and it revealed grace and spirit. Yeah. So they're not, just, they're not just for decoration. They're not just for teaching. These reveal grace and spirit. In other words, it's what we would call an ordinary means of grace. Yeah. They say these images are an ordinary means of grace. It's one of the ways God blesses you, right? That's what we say about the word. That's what we say about the sacraments and prayers. And they were saying that about the images. Um. One defender of, of icons described their function like this. The icon is placed on a level with Holy Scripture and with the cross as one of the forms of revelation and knowledge of God in which, the, which divine and human will and action become blended. Is that just a decoration? <laughs> no, it certainly becomes something far more than that. So the idea is someone prays through the icon. They don't pray to the icon. They don't, they don't look at the image and pray to it. Instead, they they use the icon as, you might think of it as a conduit. So the prayer and the worship is given to it, but transferred to the one that the image represents. So if you're trying to pray to Mary, you look at that image of Mary and you pray to Mary and you know that your prayer is not going to this piece of whatever it's made of. But instead, it's actually going to Mary herself wherever she is. Right? We'll talk next week about praying to Mary. (laughs) Um, but the same thing goes with Jesus, right? You're not praying to this piece of, of cloth or this piece of fabric or this piece of tile or mosaic or whatever. Instead, you're, you're praying to Jesus through it. It's helping you, right? That's, that's the idea. And this is what they mean when they say veneration. And it becomes a normal part of religious worship in the Middle Ages onward. Remember, you may have even forgotten that this was a lesson on the Middle Ages. Yeah, Micah. Micah.
1: Fire. have a picture on the side uh, that they do think
0: Yeah, I think the I think the prototypical example I would point to is somebody like Thomas. Right? Jesus Jesus is speaking to Thomas and he ends up showing up and making the case for himself to Thomas and giving Thomas what he asks for, right? Because what does Thomas want to see? He wants to see with his own eyes the the holes in his hands. He wants to touch them actually. He wants more than just to just to see. He wants to touch he wants to feel he wants to confirm he wants to know it for himself in a sensory way and then you remember what jesus says to thomas if i could paraphrase jesus you know he says blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe i think partly what he's saying is the rest of church history doesn't get what you get thomas they don't get to see me you knew you do thomas will always till the day he dies right which he did die Thomas, until the day he dies, knows what Jesus looked like. He knows the look on Jesus's face when he reached down and put his hand into his side. I wonder, you know, I wonder sometimes the facial expressions Jesus made. Just the way he reacted. I want to know more than the text of scripture gives me. And Thomas knows, like Thomas knows more information and he has curiosity satisfied in a way that I don't have. Um, so I think all of church history has been people wanting more than, than we than we get, you know, in Scripture. And it's constantly God saying, you must be satisfied with what I've given you in my word. Yeah, Eric.
1: Well, I'm just also thinking that for all those that saw all the things that Jesus saw Jesus, I am reminded
0: of um, John and, and Peter at the transfiguration. still
1: didn't help them with their belief. Right? They still doubted.
0: Yeah. And so I just keep Seeing ends up being only a piece of what we really need, right? Um, and, and Jesus is saying, actually he says more blessed is the person who has not seen it and yet believed. So I, I think Jesus is not as impressed with visual, with visual with, with visual validation and representation. I think Jesus is far less impressed with it than, than we are. I think we yearn for it, you know, and it's natural for us to yearn for it. So yes. Uh, the, the disciples had a truthful view of Jesus. They knew what he really looked like. They remembered what he looked like and they could never get that out of their heads. And yet Jesus plans on us not. Yeah, Jim.
1: Well, wow. um, my mind about five times popped back to the Old Testament when God was talking to Israel after a great demonstration of power bringing them out of Egypt. And then he drops the kids to these other nations are having great images. He's way out in front of Israel Going
0: on in the big picture. So yeah. the Romans, when they go to, when they go into Jerusalem, they go to um, the temple and the thing that shocks them when they go into the temple is there's nothing in it. <laughs> like I was just listening to that this week. I was listening to Tom Holland's book Rubicon and he was talking about how the Romans go to Jerusalem. They walk into the temple. They think they're going to see the, the, the thing that the Jews have been worshiping and it's empty. That's just the thing that makes us makes our you know Judaism spirits, so so interesting. Really got aggressive with
1: uh, one or two of the kings literally tore down all the things in the, in the hills and all the images and incense burning areas and yeah. a couple
0: of times. So I've actually gone seven minutes over. Let me wrap up. <laughs> yeah. I by the way, this is a huge topic. It's amazing that this hasn't gone on two hours. Um, I know this is a minority position among modern people. I believe it's a modern position, even in our denomination. It's in our standards, and I believe that most ministers in the PCA do not hold my view. So I'm like the grumpy guy off in the corner who's like, don't do it, you know? <laughs> I try to do it with a smile on my face, but um, you know, we are very conditioned by movies and TV and books and our phones to relate to ideas by means of visuals and symbols, right? It's never enough for us to just read The Lord of the Rings. We've got to ruin it with this TV series, right? Like, it's never enough for us to just see something. We've got to see somebody at least try, or like the Mario Brothers, right? We need that first Mario Brothers movie. Uh, It just made us feel so good when it came out in the 90s. And then we were like, what did we do? Um, To to modern people, very natural to use images as a sort of aid or or an assistance. And yet God gave us his word. and, And if we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, I have to... I have to hope that that would tide us over until we get to see him face-to-face. Um, I realize there's more we could say. I, I do need to stop. We've gone too long. So um, I am sure there's a potential for a lot of conversation afterwards, but let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've, that you've given us your word and that you, you did dwell incarnate among us for 30 plus years walking this earth. We thank you for all of the people who saw you, all of the people who... Worshipped you, and they were right to see you face to face and to give you glory and praise and honor and adoration. And we look forward to the day when we will see you and we will lay eyes on you and we will see you as you are and we will love you and we will love that face and we will love that man who loved us. But I pray that you would satisfy us with you as you've revealed yourself to us and that you would protect us from needing to fill in the gaps, as it were. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.